everyone. Welcome to the True Path Podcast. I'm so glad you're joining us today. So today we're in session five of our study in 1 Peter, and we're discussing chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. So last week we talked about how God is building Christians as living stones into a spiritual house, and a holy nation, in verses 5 and 9, so that we might proclaim the praises of God. God wants believers to be a unified church, a people for his possession, because it helps us as individuals to stay strong spiritually. And it's a testimony to the unbelieving world of the Lord's goodness. God takes this call seriously, and so should we. But unfortunately, as we all know, being a unified church and witness to an unbelieving world is no easy task. It is not something that's going to come naturally for us. We're going to have to make it a priority. We're going to have to commit to it, to work at it. So I believe in verses 11 through 17, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling us how, how to live in unity with fellow believers and how to conduct ourselves as Christians before a watching world. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17 in the CSB. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or the governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves, honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. So verse 11 says, I urge you as strangers and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Peter says to urge, he urges us, meaning to admonish, to exhort, to beg, to entreat, to plead. Clearly, this is an extremely important matter to God. Therefore, it should also be for us. The text also says, as strangers and exiles abstain. Peter refers to Christians as strangers and exiles often in this letter. Could it be that he doesn't want us to forget that as God's people, we are different from the world? As Christians, our home and citizenship is in heaven, not earth. And because because we are citizens of heaven, we should live like it and not assimilate to the worldly culture surrounding us. And we can avoid assimilating to the culture by abstaining from sinful desires. The word abstain means to hold oneself off, to refrain, to hold back. What's important to note is the fact that Peter's telling Christians to abstain from sinful desires means that Christians are going to have sinful desires. I think people can get the idea that Christians are perfect and they never have to deal with sin, but that's just not true. When we placed our faith and trust in Jesus as the Savior and Lord of our lives, we were saved from the penalty and condemnation of sin. We became dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, according to Romans 6.11. But Although our spiritual orientation has changed, our environment hasn't. We are still living in a fallen world filled with temptation, and opportunities to sin are still going to be there. Christians aren't perfect or better than everybody else. The only difference between Christians and the rest of the world 
is the spirit of Jesus in our hearts and the word of God in our minds. And because of that, we have the power to say no to sinful desires. And Peter's not sugarcoating it here either. I mean, he comes right out and tells us it's a battle. Those sinful desires wage war against our souls. And notice it's sinful desires that wage war on our souls, our inner selves, our hearts and minds. I think people can be misled into thinking that only actions are sinful and thoughts and desires are not. But what did Jesus say on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5? You've heard it said you shall not murder, but I say don't be angry without cause. And you've heard thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say do not have lustful thoughts. Not only our actions, our thought lives, our desires can be dangerous. And if we allow sinful thoughts and desires to go unchecked, they're going to cause us to become weak and ineffectual in our walk with the Lord. They will fill our hearts with doubt and rob us of God's comfort and peace. They breed resentment, bitterness, and despair. Therefore, it's vital to us as Christians to do what 2 Corinthians 10.5 tells us. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. And when we engage in the battle of submitting our souls, our hearts and minds to Jesus' Lordship, then we're going to be able to fulfill the tall order God has for us in verse 12. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. Other translations say pagans, which means unbelievers, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. It's not easy conducting ourselves with honor among people who slander us. It's hard to do good to people who are accusing you of doing evil. It's going to take courage. It's going to take strength, perseverance, and patience. Not a task for the faint-hearted, but it's possible, and it's for a very good reason. As Christians, we can live lives of goodness and honor among those who speak evil of us because of what we learned last week in verses 9 and 10. Jesus has called us out of the darkness of our previous life without him and into his marvelous light. Once we were without mercy, and now we are God's people, and we have been given his mercy. We can show mercy to others because of his great mercy to us in bringing us to salvation. We live in the light of Jesus' presence every moment of our lives, and he gives us the capability to share that light with others. And what's the purpose of this? Well, doing good by following God can actually change hearts. It can change minds. It can change attitudes. Practicing a godly lifestyle can win others to the faith. It can even prompt people who are adversarial to the Christian faith to come to salvation, to glorify God on the day that he visits. Such is the case with Rosaria Butterfield, who in the 1990s was a professor of English and Women's Studies at Syracuse University. She was also an activist in the progressive feminist movement. Her historical focus, she says, was formed by the likes of Freud, Marx, and Darwin. She says at that time in her life, she didn't just dislike Christians, she despised them. To her, Christians were shallow people who quoted verses to fit an occasion, but had no depth in explaining the Bible. But the tides turned for her when she was befriended by a pastor and his wife. God used a humble couple's simple invitation to dinner to draw her, a radical, committed unbeliever, to himself. And through this friendship, she was drawn to read and study the Bible, and she came to believe it to be the true Word of God. 
Since her conversion to Christianity, she has written three books, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, Openness Unhindered, and The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Practicing Radically Ordinary Hospitality in Our Post-Christian World. And this is what she says. She says, hospitality is ground zero of evangelism. This is a heart business. And what Pastor Ken Smith and his wife did for me was just become my friend. You see, that's what I believe Peter's calling for here, that evildoers will someday glorify God and come to salvation because of our good works and kindness. So we must be mindful that as verse 12 says, people are observing us. So let's make sure people come to Jesus for salvation because of our lifestyle and not in spite of it. And Peter gives us an example of how to conduct ourselves honorably among unbelievers. Verses 13 through 15 tells us, Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. So it says to submit to human authority because of the Lord. We honor God by honoring those in authority. And if you think it's hard for us in today's political climate to submit to authority, imagine what it was like in Peter's day. I mean, they weren't living in a democratic republic where their rights and freedoms were protected. They were living under the oppressive regime of the Roman Empire. And the emperor was the godless, brutal Nero, who was actually going to crucify Peter in a few short years. But why is it necessary to submit to earthly authorities? Well, because it's God's will. And doing good will silence the ignorance of foolish people. Clearly, in, in the Christians in Peter's day, they faced continuous ridicule, slander, and verbal abuse by people who were ignorant and evil. Hmm. Sound familiar? But rather than God calling for Christians to rise up and rebel and fight back, he tells us to submit. Now, this is kind of a hard pill to swallow. This word submit is a hot button issue today, just as it was in the first century. But why? I mean, why is submission such a difficult concept? Well, I think because of the connotation of the word. We often think of the word submission in relation to being a doormat, a weakling, inept, unable to think for yourself. And we're constantly hearing, take charge, be your own boss, take control. And so when we're continually being fed these messages, no wonder it can be troublesome when we encounter the word submit in scripture. But what does it truly mean to submit? Well, it means to obey, to yield to one's admonition, to be subject to. In Romans 13, 1, it says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So we willingly choose to place ourselves under earthly authorities out of our obedience and submission to God's ultimate authority. One commentator says Peter urges Christians to submit to all legitimate authorities, whether or not they are believers. The recognition of properly constituted authority is necessary for the greatest good of the largest number of people, and it's necessary to best fulfill the will of God in the world. You see, God ordained the system, so believers should respect it. However, there is a stipulation. In Acts 4, 18 and 19, 
when the authorities commanded Peter and John to stop speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus, they replied, which is right in the eyes of God, to listen to you or to him? And Peter himself says in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than people. So we must submit to authorities as long as they're not in violation of God's law. You see, God doesn't want ignorance and foolishness to prosper any more than we do. But there's a right way to refute it. By doing good, verse 15 says. That is the way God wills it, to silence foolish people. Not by out-arguing them, shouting them down, or even ignoring them, but by doing good to them. Now, that's quite a challenge, I know. But we can do this, because we have something that they don't. Christ within us. And it is his presence that gives us power, makes all things possible. And in all honesty, Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that he didn't do himself. In Matthew 26, when Jesus was arrested and brought before the chief priest in Sanhedrin, and they accused him of blasphemy and brought in false witnesses, did he argue his case, argue his cause, or initiate an uprising? No, he let his life speak for itself. What does your life say about you? God has willed that we silence critics by doing good, not opposing authority. We may not agree with their politics or their practices, but we must respect their position. And ultimately, we can remember what Psalm 66-7 tells us. God rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. In Psalm 22-28, for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. God has ultimate authority over everything, and Christianity can flourish even under oppressive regimes. Think of the prosperity of the church in China. So verses 16 and 17 say, Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. So it says to submit as free people. The ESV says, live as people who are free. The NIV says, live as free men. As Christians, we are free. Because of Christ's free gift of salvation, and because he paid the price that our sins deserve, we have been set free from the penalty of sin, the condemnation of sin, and the power of sin. John 8.36 says, so if the Son sets you free, you really will be free. Followers of Christ are free from Satan's dominion and God's wrath. But Christians must not abuse their liberty and use it as a cover-up for evil. We can't live however we want because we know God's always going to forgive us. And Christians mustn't think that because they're under God's authority that they no longer have to follow the laws of society. Both John and Paul address those issues. In Romans 6, Paul basically asked the question, that if Christians are under grace, which we are because of Christ's sacrifice, then does that mean that we can just go on sinning because Jesus' grace will cover it? And Paul says point blank, by no means, because the one who continues sinning is a slave to it. We're slaves to what we obey. So if we're obeying Jesus, then we're going to want to get rid of sinful ways and desires. John is even more blunt when he says in 1 John 3, 6 and 7, no one who lives in Christ keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin knows Christ. So it's pretty evident from Scripture that those who continue in willful, continual patterns of sin 
without any conviction or repentance, cannot expect to be excused because they claim to be Christians. And notice again what verse 16 says, Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Only in God's economy can such a paradox, being slave and free at the same time, make perfect sense. Only as God's slaves can we truly be free. But how is that possible? Well, it's by surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus that we're set free from the shackles of sin that once bound us. We're free to be the people we're meant to be, created to be. We don't have to measure up to other people's standards to be accepted or counted as worthy, because God makes us worthy. Our value doesn't come from what we do or how many followers we have on YouTube or Instagram, or how much money we have, or what we've accomplished. Our value comes from being God's child, and we are dearly loved and accepted by the God of the universe, always and forever. And there's great freedom in that. And when we experience God's grace, His unmerited favor towards us, then we're going to be motivated to fear Him, as verse 17 says, to honor everyone and to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We can honor everyone, even those with whom we disagree, even with those who are disagreeable, because they also bear the image of God. There were many in the first century who thought Messiah came to start a holy war, to overthrow the oppressive government. But instead, he came to change lives from the inside out. And when we allow the Holy Spirit room in our lives to make changes, by obeying God's word, then it will show outwardly. We will honor those in authority and those around us. We will show love for our Christian family. God is challenging us to be different. Are you willing to take that challenge? Are we willing to show kindness and hospitality even to those who hold a different worldview or are hostile to the Christian faith? May we have the courage to step outside our boundaries and share the love that Jesus has so graciously shared with us. Thank you so much for joining me today. God bless you.